Well, it's another weekend, and here we are at the CSO's Corners Podcast, and we're excited to have you join us on this Friday to cover some interesting news and topics. Um, so I've got a beer in my hand already, uh, and I'm ready to get the weekend on. Um, in this podcast, we talk about cybersecurity, and this is an issue that literally affects every person on the globe, directly or indirectly, mostly directly these days. It's a complex issue with lots of different parts and aspects. So welcome to the show. Uh, today's topics, we'll talk a little bit about digital currencies. There was a, there was a notification yesterday uh, about the U.S. government getting behind digital currencies. And this ties back to obviously stuff going on in Eastern Europe and Ukraine and what have you. Um, we'll take a look at hacking in the Ukraine or around the conflict in Ukraine you know, I feel a little bit like Chicken Little sitting here right now because I've been telling everybody, watch out, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And here we are, and it's actually been kind of quiet. So we'll delve into that just a little bit. It hasn't been entirely quiet, but but uh, we'll kind of delve into that. And then we might get to some other topics as well. And uh, with me in the virtual studio today, I have Gina Beckman. So I took a look at the news, and that's what I thought we could do is just kind of hop online and see what's going on. So one of my favorite uh, sites to go to is Threat Post. I have a few different ones. And um, there are some interesting things going on. So you could say there, there are a couple of things that I talked about early on in the conflict, like literally the next few days or, I, or even when it was leading up to it, um, was how if something happens, we, would, we should expect to see um, a fair amount of activity with hacking and whatnot. And that this could come from the Russian government or from the Chinese government. I never really thought that the Russian government would directly affect uh, or, or try to target, you know, anything in particular. Um, but the other, the other area, if you will, that I thought that we would see some activity is really around these different uh, other groups, not government organized or anything like that, but but governments that essentially uh, benefit from the Chinese and the Russians sort of looking the other way and vice versa, those governments, they benefit from these groups kind of just sowing discord and, and, uh, and keeping us distracted, if you will. So uh, that's where we've seen actually some activity. The, the Russians appear to have stayed really off the hacking altogether. For example, we expected to see that um, the Russians did essentially cyber warfare against Ukraine. And while there was a little bit of that going on, it didn't get as bad as I think we, we expected. Uh, there, are, there are essentially supported, you know, Russian non, uh, sort of non-government Russian hackers that have done crazy things like the colonial pipeline that we spoke to or, or wrote about here last year. Um, that was a group that was essentially, you know, allowed to operate that way, you know, in, in Russia. And, um, and of course, we saw what happened there. And, and you could certainly imagine that as we're tightening down these different uh, economic sanctions on Russia, their, the economy is tanking, they're uh, being locked up from the resources that they would take to some of these, some of these tactics, uh, and, and kind of try to hit us where it hurts. And I mean, we're, the, the hurt that we're feeling right now is largely driven by the sanctions that we have imposed on them and effectively on us as well. 
So we've seen the highest oil prices we've seen since, since ever. I think we've got new records. And unfortunately, it's likely to continue. So um, we've seen some other effects as well. Um, but this is all something that we've imposed. They haven't really influenced that much at all. But that's what we expected to see. Now, what, what we have seen is kind of opportunistic hacking, I would almost call it. For example, there, <laughs> there is a, a denial of, of service, uh, denial of service tool that looks like, hey, I can download this thing and sort of attack Russia if I want to just do, do my own little uh, hacktivism here. Uh, I'm, I'm pro-Ukraine, anti-Russia. Let me go download this tool that someone has conveniently put out there for me. So um, if I do that, that thing actually is a, uh, is a uh, wolf uh, in sheep's clothing. <laughs> uh, or, or maybe it's, a, yeah, I think that's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, it'll start stealing stuff from me if I download and use this tool. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yep. Talk a little bit though about anonymous and and if, do they have do they have a hand in maybe reining in some of the the cyber uh, warfare that you you expected to go on or is it something else? So they they I want to say it's probably a week ago. Here we are. It's 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 already three weeks into this conflict, and I think anonymous. I believe it was. Oh, what did they say? I'm trying to say, um, I want to say it's maybe a week, week and change ago that they uh, declared that they were entering into um, the, the activities, if you will. And what they have done um, from, uh, you know, everything that I've been looking at, at least, is really just sort of uh, target Russian media. So they've hit some TV channels and things of that nature. That's at least what they say they have done. Um, and and who knows exactly what that does. So they've sort of, you know, harassed um, these, uh, these organizations a little bit. Uh, but just been a bit of a gadfly, just poking at them? Probably. More than anything, I think that's, uh, you know, what it is. Um, I don't know that they have done anything major. And now you kind of have to keep in mind that Anonymous isn't a single organization with, you know, central organization and directives and things of that nature. It is a loose group that, you know, uh, some people claim to belong to and do certain things. So, so there might very well be people out there doing uh, stuff, you know, quote unquote, in the name of anonymous that are truly affiliated or maybe not affiliated. I think the most, most interesting thing I saw was really that they, they claim to have, leaked a bunch of documents what we'll see so somewhere in a 300,000 plus 340 to 360,000 documents and these are just uh documents that talk about the censorship of of the war the invasion of the of ukraine so we'll kind of see what happens there um it may be that you know uh they do something interesting not really sure that we'll see all of that. You know, I maybe this is a long game that there'll be some activity, uh, you know, around anonymous, um, or or that's attributed to anonymous that you know has I don't know a positive uh, effect, if you will. But yeah, so far, um, you know, that's basically it. Now, the the part that I wanted to get to that I thought was kind of interesting. And I don't know if this is simple conjecture or not, but 
one of the reasons is that that is sort of brought up as a potential cause, if you will, a reason behind why we haven't seen the crazy activity is that everyone's afraid that, you know, kind of a cyber war would get out of, out of hand and that it would have, you know, debilitating effects. Um, I find this a little bit hard to believe, honestly. You know, the U.S. was certain this was, was going to happen. We have clients that, uh, that work with the Department of Defense and anyone kind of in the, the larger supply chain of the Department of Defense, um, as well as ourselves, we got these notifications from the government, you know, here are all the steps that you should take. And this was even before the, the conflict actually began. But basically, it was, you know, get all your security in order. There was even a piece there about going and changing your passwords, like something as simple as that. And, and they offered a, an endpoint protection tool and what have you. So the U.S. government took this very seriously. I don't think it's without reason. Um, my sources tell me that they know that the Russians have been very active and essentially have sort of pre-seeded uh, uh, multiple different places with tools and whatnot. In other words, they're already in and it's a matter of when. So, so I don't really buy the piece that this is about, oh, you know, they're afraid of starting some sort of, you know, cyber war. I think it's more along the same lines of they're pretty incompetent at regular warfare. Why would we think they were any more competent at uh, cyber warfare? And we've well, seen- a question of mine, Steve, though. Do you think part of it has to do with them being so preoccupied in a, essentially a war that is not going as quite as cleanly or as quickly as they expected? Do you think that can affect their ability or at least focus on the other, the cybersecurity front? Yes, yes I, I think so. I think so. So, so a couple of things, if we separate this out, let's look at sort of Ukraine, Russia, where we made predictions that the Russians would, you know, harass the Ukrainians through cyber attacks. That happened all the way up to when the conflict actually started. And then I think after that, it almost became a moot point. So what's the point of hacking critical infrastructure that's been bombed? So the need to do it has essentially gone away. I don't know enough about, let's say, financial systems in the Ukraine and stuff like that. Like, where are they right now? But I have a feeling that some of the, some of the, uh, well, what's a good analogy for this? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll think of one here in a minute. But uh, the, the, the reason to do cyber warfare is it's, you know, it doesn't involve weapons. You can kind of hit people um, in their, in their, it's a disrupting factor, but when everything is so disrupted as it is right now, it probably doesn't make much of a difference. So maybe if, it, if they were smarter and a sort of thought about how this would unfold and that, you know, when this happens, you know, people would be on social media and they would sort of try to stifle social media or something like that within the Ukraine, then, you know, like if the attack was a little bit smarter, then maybe they could have done something. But I wouldn't be completely surprised if what kind of what you said is right, that they're just so busy with this, you know, on the ground war that they have just sort of put the whole cyber warfare to the side. But but also, I think in Ukraine, the effect of that at this point in time is just so blunted that it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't have the, the effect that maybe it, it did. Yeah, why take down the system if you already bombed the building? Pretty much, pretty much. You're right. So the system's sitting there going beep, 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 because it can't connect to the stuff that was in the building that was bombed. 
you also do have, you know, if, if you look at Ukraine, you look at those maps that you see of, uh, you know, where the Russians are and, and where they moved and so on and so forth. It's only half the country, you know, basically to Kiev in the north and um, that, you know, the Crimea Peninsula uh, to the south, right? So they've kind of, you know, they're, they're harassing and working all up and down that side. So uh, further to the, uh, to the west, however, there aren't, you know, other than down, uh, you know, on the port city of Odessa, uh, there isn't a lot of activity. So there probably is a fair amount of, you know, technology and infrastructure in place there, but we're at least not seeing a lot of stories around that. Uh, you may recall that before the, uh, before the ground troops actually moved in, there was a group um, part of the Ukrainian government that basically was fighting uh, Russian, you know, cyber uh, attacks. So they were very busy leading up to the point where the Russians, you know, moved in. But I think largely it, it, they're not as competent as we think they are. That's at least what we're seeing in terms of the actual, you know, physical conflict, right? Everyone, I think, thought that these guys would be in there and have control of Kyiv and most of Ukraine, you know, within that first week. And then everything is sort of stalled out. So I think there's a, there's a, a degree of incompetence in the way that Russia wages war that we haven't, you know, seen that they, they maybe again, didn't expect that level of resistance. There are many different factors there, but I wonder if that doesn't translate into why we haven't seen more cyber warfare. So I think that's part of it. The other thing that you often get with these, these uh, despotic authoritarian governments is everything has to be controlled by this one man. Um, it's not a, it's not a committee or a, or a functioning multi headed uh, uh, you know, system where uh, the leader of the cyber warfare team can operate independently. He has to take his orders, if you will, from the boss. And when the boss is busy with whatever he's busy on and not listen, really listening to anyone, you know, maybe he hasn't given the directive or you just don't get the time. So I think that's part of it as well is that, you know, in a, I don't want to say more democratic, but a, a, uh, an organization that works with, fairly independent autonomous business units or entities, you know, they can be more effective than when everything has to go through a single, you know, uh, uh, patriarchal type, you know, leader. So I think that makes a difference. I think it's interesting. Um, I read that a, a number of, at least the mothers, so they always talk about the Russian mothers, you know, Ru Russian mothers come get your sons. Um, yeah. A lot of them are saying that their sons had no idea that they were going to war, that they just thought that they were doing compulsory exercises near the border and that they're all in their, you know, one year of mandatory military service. And they talked to their mom and said, oh, yeah, we're going to go to a concert. We're going to do some exercise. And then the next day they were in Ukraine making their their invasion. So mm -hmm. uh, that might go again towards it's not quite going the way one man expected it to go. Yeah, I think I think that's just one more piece of evidence. Um, I mean, it, 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 you know, on many different levels, right? So that's one more thing that just talks about how screwed up things are over there in terms of what people are told and not told, and how information is controlled, and who decides who gets to hear what, and the lies they you know tell their people. Um, so you know, I think on the one hand, they probably thought it would be a quick thing. And they weren't expecting to have many soldiers, you know, come back in body bags or not come back at all. 
So they probably didn't plan for this. And they're going off of things like Crimea, things that there's operation in the, you know, the eastern part of Ukraine, the Donbass uh, areas, that's sort of what they're operating off of. And then other conflicts like uh, Chechnya and Georgia, where I think they were facing a less trained force, you know, and, and they were overwhelming and, you know, maybe the world was more with them there and, and sort of saw those as terrorists and, you know, couldn't relate like we can to Ukraine. That's a whole different topic to talk about how we're so excited. Well, not excited, but we're so engaged in the Ukraine conflict and we were never really engaged in the Georgian conflict or even the Syrian conflict uh, for that matter and what they did there. They were doing the same thing. I mean, they, this is the, the third time they're using essentially the same tactics and only now we seem like we're outraged about it. There were people, there were a few people that were outraged when they were using these tactics in Georgia and Chechnya and, and in Syria. But, but the world has become outraged and Europe is obviously more engaged since this is on, you know, on the, on the threshold, if not inside the door of Europe. Um, Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Um, You know, there's a million scenarios how this can play out, but you're a bit of a futurist. Um, (laughs) Best case scenario, you know, it kind of seems like there's a united front in, in most of the world against this war and um, the micro and macro levels, what would be the best case scenario? Well, um, how about I do this? I I think there's kind of two outcomes, two extreme outcomes. And I'll go to the dark one first. (laughs) Um, And I'll go to the lighter. We'll end on the lighter one. I think the dark one is, I I liken Putin to one of these men that you read about, and it's largely men that do this, that perpetrate these crimes, but they've gotten to a place of sort of depression and paranoia or whatever, that they decide that the best outcome, the way they see this is to murder their kids and their wife and then commit suicide. If I can't have you, nobody will mentality. Exactly. The murder suicide person. So that's my greatest fear is that Putin is going to become that, except the, the murder part is using nukes um, and causing destruction. Now, I don't actually believe, if, if that scenario unfolds, I don't necessarily believe that it will result in a world war, but it all depends on how long he might survive after doing something like that. Um, but let's say that he does that as sort of a last ditch effort or something like that. Um, I think the West will still be very restrained, just knowing that escalating that situation will be bad, but it'll be bad. There's no question about it. I think he's willing to do it. So that's the, that's the worst case scenario. And what I am most worried about, um, I don't know if we should worry here in the United States, but I have family and, and kids and I'm from Europe and I, you know, I've lots of friends over there and I worry about uh, Europe, you know, basically having to deal with a a nuclear explosion somewhere. So anyway, uh, so that's the worst case scenario. Um, I think the best case scenario is that Putin loses, you know, the, the, the faith, if you will, of not just his people. I think that's going to come the slowest, unfortunately, but the, the leadership around him, like that there's some 
smarter minds that prevail around them and see that the longer they persist, the worse this gets for Russia and that they somewhere deep down in there, remember, you know, that that's their country, that's their mother Russia, and they want to decide to save that. And what they then do is take Putin out. Putin will never go. He will never back down. Uh, this is a guy who's never done that. He, he's not going to be able to save face any way through this. And so this is going to, if it continues like it does right now, where the West is sort of tiptoeing around the issue, uh, afraid to get engaged because it could escalate, then um, we're, we're probably just going to see this continue. There, yes, body bags are, are piling up or Russians are piling up in the street, but they, they're managing that sort of communication or information warfare within their country. We're going we're gonna to tap at it, but I don't think anything's going to change dramatically there. Um, the Ukrainians are going to fight, fight, fight. Uh, you know, and, and, but they're also, there's, there's going to be nothing left of that country. And, and I think the big question will be what happens if the Russians are successful in finally taking, you know, everything um, to the East of that river that, you know, runs from Belarusia to, to, uh, to the Black Sea, you know, they'll take Odessa, they'll kind of take that. It's almost like a, a, a circle. So, We'll see then if they continue to move west, but or decide that they've now created a buffer zone, and they might literally stop there and then, for a period of time, try to sort of keep that buffer zone. Uh, and, and this is part of Putin's plan. Like I think, I think one of the things that we fail to do is sort of see this, like step into his shoes and try to really see this from his his shoes. And we can do, we can maybe dive into that topic another time. But I think that's I think that's the most likely scenario. I think all these other things are going to sort of be there, but I don't see them backing off. I don't see any of that. And then we get to this sort of like, you know, Afghanistan and Europe situation where um, the entire eastern portion from the river, uh, I forget what the river is called. So so basically we'll have this we'll have this country that split and it's a war torn area to. Uh, to the east that Russia kind of controls for a period of time. And then the question is, you know, do they eventually get to a point where they, uh, they feel like, you know, they, they, it costs too much to continue to try to, uh, uh, to hold that? Uh, that that's, that's what I think anyway. Let me ask you another question. How, yeah. much, how much is this about Poland? I mean, obviously we're worried about Ukraine, but is it really about the expansion of what's next, who's next, if this goes the way it goes? The Dnieper River is what it's called in the south. I don't know if it's called that all the way up north. Or, yeah, it's the, it's the Dnieper, Dnieper River. So that's I'm not going to yeah. even try to pronounce it. No, I know. It's, it's definitely not easy. But that basically splits the country more or less in half. Um, so, yes, is it about Poland? I think... I think yes and no. So there, there are many things. One is you've got this guy who's crazy and he's been, you know, unsuccessful, if you will, at making the Russian economy great. So he can't, he doesn't succeed at that. And, and his vision or understanding or, or feeling of greatness comes from when Russia was at the center of the Soviet Union and there were all these, uh, these uh, Soviet states uh, around 
uh, and he has a vision of essentially returning to that state. So as Poland and the, the Baltic states join NATO, then, uh, you know, you can just sort of see that he's concerned that 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 possibility is eroding. So if you look at the map, you kind of have to look at the map and, and see this, but you've got Belarus. Belarus is, um, is basically, you know, almost part of, of Russia, right? It's just as much of uh, the Soviet state as it was before. To the north, you have Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, and they were basically, so all of these countries declared independence after the Soviet Union fell apart. But um, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania decided that their, their safety would lie in joining NATO. So, so you've got basically uh, those states are NATO, and they board, two of those border Russia. Lithuania borders you know, Belarus. Then you've got, you've got Poland. Poland joined NATO. But Poland is also between, or Belarus is between you know, Poland and Russia. Uh, Russia has a small place between Lithuania and Poland called, uh, I don't even know what the, the, the area is called, but there's a town there called Kalin- Kaliningrad, which is uh, Russia's basically port in, in the, the Baltic Sea. Uh, and it's one of those things that, I don't know, it was carved out after the Second World War. So Russia got to keep that, even though you know, it probably either should belong to Poland or Lithuania. I don't know about the history now. So that's on the north side. So you got basically NATO bordering Russia um, in Estonia, in Latvia, and then to the very north, Norway borders uh, Russia as well. Um, and then to the south, you have, south of Belarus, you have Ukraine. If NATO was allowed to get to you into Ukraine, um, and become and, and Ukraine became a, a a part of NATO. We're talking about thirty miles between the Ukrainian border and Moscow, and NATO would be able to put nuclear weapons that close to Moscow, and that's a huge, huge threat. Um, the U.S. government wasn't very happy when Moscow worked with Cuba to put you know missiles, um, you know, on Cuba. 90 miles south of the 90 miles away, 90 miles away. This is closer. Wow. So you kind of have to understand it. Like who would want NATO that close when this is the opposing force, right? This is your, your biggest adversary. And who knows what else he had in mind? Like, you know, what, what was the reasoning, you know, with Crimea? Was that part of this bigger picture or was that a test? Um, So anyway, um, I think I think you have to you have to spend some time trying to get into the mind of of Putin and looking at it from a very you know paranoid individual thinking I don't want the NATO uh, you know the NATO alliance that close um, nukes on my border you know so close that you know you you wouldn't have very much time to react so that part's understandable Poland he can't do anything about but Poland's also further you know, it's, it's a lot further away. It's, you know, almost two thirds of Ukraine further away. And, and Belarus acts as a, as a buffer because they are essentially so influenced by Russia. Um, and so if you go back to pre, pre sort of NATO talks and, um, oh, what was the guy that was there before Zelensky? Um, he was, he was thrown out by the people, but basically Russia kept sort of trying to keep 
um, pro-Russian governments in Ukraine, and they kind of did all this political stuff. Even leading up to the conflict, we were talking about how there was going to be a lot of, you know, basically sort of political shenanigans and and you know, sort of red flag type activities trying to topple the Zelensky government to to install a Russian puppet. If they had achieved that, then this conflict wouldn't have happened. If they had managed to keep um, the previous, you know, oligarch type leader in Ukraine in place, this wouldn't have happened because they could kind of control it that way. They would keep the Ukraine uh, or keep Ukraine from moving towards the West and whatnot. Now, one of the other things I talked to my mom just the other day and she's in Norway and she, and, and uh, the head of NATO is a Norwegian guy and a guy named Jens Stoltenberg. He has sort of been, or in Norway, at least he's blamed for, for contributing to this conflict because he was sort of waving uh, or poking his nose at Russia and saying Ukraine should be able to join NATO if they want to. And, you know, even try to hasten the process and all this kind of stuff. And then that didn't really happen. But if you look at it from, from again, from Putin's perspective, from the Russian's perspective, like they got really close to this happening. Why would they want to allow it to happen again, particularly with a much more West pro-Western government like Zelensky? And, and during this administration, during the, the Obama administration, we were forging ties and, you know, strengthening them and, and doing all sorts of stuff, particularly with the activity going out in the, in the eastern part of the Ukraine. So um, it, I think it's kind of understandable uh, what's going on, unfortunately. So, so what do we do right now? I, I, you know, I think it's a very, very sad waiting game at this stage. Uh, nobody's going to win. Um, and, and hopefully the worst stuff doesn't happen. We've been talking a lot internally here about, um, you know, just that micro and macro sort of response to the war and how, you know, companies like Airbnb and Tesla and, you know, really Elon Musk, um, McDonald's, PepsiCo, uh, Amazon now, you know, they're all they're all kind of, you know, putting their money where their mouth is. And uh, how do you feel about the, uh, the response globally? I, I think it's pretty awesome. You know, we touched on it this morning in our meeting where we talked about how uh, there's, a, there's a movement that we haven't really seen in, in this kind of a conflict before. A lot of the information and activities and stuff that's being reported on is not being reported on through the, the, the sort of the most common, you know, big media channels. A lot of this happens on social media and between the smaller groups and individuals. And one of the areas where that has played out is in companies that maybe otherwise wouldn't have engaged in this, you know, politically, they don't want to make a political statement, or they look at, you know, uh, the losses of, for example, pulling out of Russia. But we've seen a lot of organizations pull out of Russia. And, uh, you know, being like oil and, and other organizations that you maybe wouldn't have thought would decide to sort of cut their ties and cut their losses, like billions of dollars of losses by leaving Russia, and maybe just hoping that this would eventually end and they could sort of wait it out. And, and the belief at least is that the people within these companies are standing up and saying, I can't work for a company that supports the Russian government, you know, and they're looking at that going, we can't lose our people. We got to take a stand here. It's a safe stand compared to other types of conflicts. So I think that's part of it, but they're losing money. And I mean, they've, they've got to be looking at that going, how do we tell, 
shareholders and this, that, or the other. So, so there's definitely that aspect of it, I think, which is really interesting. I was just reading an article this morning that the only companies that seem to persist over there are pharmacies, pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. And, and <laughs> there's, they're making the argument that, you know, they can't take away their, uh, their factories producing pharmaceuticals, uh, at, you know, a, a, and that this is an essential, you know, medicines are essential to the Russian people. And by taking it away, you know, they're, they're doing this, that, and the other sort of, you know, unethical or unmoral by causing another that humanitarian out. crisis on a different level. Yeah. Yes, essentially. Now there's a Yale, I think he's a Yale professor who said that's BS. That's what they're saying. <laughs> yes. uh, but, but you know, that, you know, anyway, I, I won't wait into that one, but I think that's kind of interesting. Most of the companies are basically sort of cut in ties and uh, you know, for McDonald's. And like you said, these other companies are stepping up. So, um, so I think it's, it's easier for most companies to engage and to take a stand. Uh, it's not that hard, right? This was an unprovoked conflict. Uh, Russia is kind of the bad guy. Uh, you know, it's pretty easy to take that stand. Um, and I think it sort of comes down to, um, you know, doing the right thing and accepting that there might be a loss associated with it. The, the other thing I wanted to sort of pivot to talking about Tesla is uh, there are lots of unintended consequences with this. And it sort of get, drives home the how entirely global we are, uh, our own economy and the world economy and everything like that. We've obviously seen it with oil. We'll see it in pharmaceuticals as well. So that's another thing that'll be affected. But metals, metals that go into the cars that Tesla produces, many of those come out of Russia. So right. Russia is a big producer of metals that go into circuitry and batteries and things of that nature. So we're seeing supply chains, you know, even, even affecting that. And, and this is, you know, think about this. This is all at the same time that we're talking about, you know, why, why not turn up, you know, crank, open up the, the oil uh, wells here in the U.S. and kind of increase oil. And there's another group saying, oh, you know, we need to invest in, in clean energy and all this. I mean, it's, it's very interesting how this all is unfolding. And I think it reminds me of what's called a stochastic system. So there are so many different factors influencing all of this that it becomes very hard to predict. It's not random, but the, these things are moving that you essentially need an AI kind of machine to be able to predict what's actually going to happen because everything is sort of moving simultaneously in different directions and influencing each other. So I think we have a little bit of a stochastic system going in terms of trying to predict what's going to happen in the future. But I do think temporarily we'll see an increase in, in oil production and, and, uh, and exploration and all that kind of stuff, sort of a fallout. Hopefully the West, the U.S., will kind of wake up to, we can't depend on Russia, first of all, and then also looking, you know, at alternative energy sources. Uh, most of our oil comes from these bad countries, <laughs> Saudi Arabia, Russia, and Venezuela. So we're supporting, you know, dictators uh, in our oil consumption. And, and, you know, some of like right now we're going and kissing, uh, uh, Maduro's, you know, feet. <laughs> hey, we, 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 we've been an asshole to you for the last three hey, years. Buddy. But, yeah, but exactly. Now that is world <laughs> politics though. I mean, this, this happens all the time, but it is kind of funny. Um, anyway, so, uh, so spinning forward, one of the things that I think is really interesting to see is that all these typical sort of NGOs, you know, Red Cross and everything like that, they're stepping up as usual. We have a lot of other organizations also stepping in to deal with the humanitarian crisis that we have going on in Ukraine with people leaving. And 
it's great to see that we have this strong, um, uh, you know, framework and system of these organizations that are able to help. But I think almost anyone that's able to get to the to the west of Ukraine and then over the borders, you know, will at least have their lives spared and they'll have, you know, hot meals and a place to 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 stay and close. And and it seems like there's no that's not the issue right now. And they're being sort of transported, you know, further west and north in Europe. Um, I know my own country, Norway, uh, is preparing, you know, to to bring and integrate a lot of Ukrainians. And here we can sort of pivot to the longer term picture. I think that, you know, if you look at the destruction in Ukraine and it's around their cities, so it's where industry and whatnot is, you know, it's going to take a long, long time to recover. Even if we could stop the war today, you know, it's it's 50 years until that country recovers from what's happened so far in just three weeks. And then unfortunately, like many others, I don't believe this is over for a while. I think this is going to continue for a while. And so I think there's a there's a good chance that, you know, a lot of Ukrainians, they want to go back. They all say they want to go back. Nobody wants to leave Ukraine. That's Ukrainian. But the reality is there might not be much to go back to. Or even if they go back, there might not be the level of industry and uh, economy to sustain them. And this is one of the topics that we've talked about in our company is, you know, how can we help people get work? We're, we're a virtual company. We work with most companies or many companies that have been remote because of the pandemic and are essentially operating like virtual companies. What we've started talking about, and, you know, we honestly don't even have everything figured out is like figuring out, you know, as a community, particularly within cybersecurity, but within technology, how can we sort of extend our uh, companies and our abilities and our brains and everything like that to help the Ukrainians that are coming out of Ukraine once they get settled? And, you know, that probably a couple of weeks or so after, you know, crossing the border, um, it's maybe pretty chaotic. But at some point, they're going to get into sort of temporary housing somewhere and, and find a semi-permanent place and maybe maybe it's another few weeks until they get to some place but from there on out they're going to be you know stuck in some place uh hopefully not a refugee camp but somewhere and they're going to need work they're going to need to be able to create an income or they're going to find themselves in these refugee camps that we've seen particularly in the Midwest, uh, sorry, Midwest, <laughs> Middle East, you know, around Syria and, and whatnot, where these people are, are stuck in refugee camps for years, Turkish border, et cetera, and like all the stuff going on in the Middle East. Um, Africa has generated these, these you know, long, uh, large refugee camps. I don't think that's going to happen with the Ukrainians because they, they're going to integrate, you know, throughout Europe or find places in Europe. And, and I think the less that they have to do that, the more we can help them, the better they will be. And I think that a lot of that's going to be around uh, helping find work, find work. And I think the, the awesomeness is we're a, we're a gig economy or we're moving towards a gig economy. Many of the companies of you know, my friends, other people that have companies and people I know, my network, they work for companies that could relatively easily employ these people. Many are highly educated, you know, many are in the technology field. We're kind of making a, a call out to everybody to sort of step up and help. We don't exactly know what that's going to be like. And that's one of the things we're working on is trying to figure out how do we 
align things. We're trying not to reinvent the wheel. There are companies out there already do this. So we're engaged with some of these gig uh, type workplaces, freelancer and others to see how do we get them engaged. And right now they're actually dealing with problems of Ukrainians, you know, getting paid and other people on their platform getting paid and and maybe the customers on those platforms going, oh, what do I do? Do I pull my contract? Do I stop? But money has stopped flowing in some cases because of the, the, the sanctions against certain Russian banks, which, of course, operate in Ukraine. But we'll get beyond that. And then it'll be about how do we open our doors to these people that are going to stay in Europe, you know, in the countries surrounding all over and essentially need jobs. So that's our ask of you. And I think on that note, we'll basically, uh, we'll, we'll end the podcast here um, on this Friday. I'm out of beer. Uh, the wife is looking in my office saying, hey, we got to go. Uh, we're going to go have a drink. So we'll say on that note, um, thanks so much for listening uh, this week. Uh, we ask only one thing of you. There's no cost to this new podcast. Uh, but spread the word, let everybody know about it. And particularly with this topic here, I'm very passionate about trying to help people that you know really didn't want this to happen. So if you can uh, think about a job that you have, it doesn't have to be a big job. You know, how can you open it up? And we're going to put up some resources for you to uh, get involved, uh, even if it's just donating money. Uh, that's the first step here, but we'll get that out. So thank you so much and uh, have a happy Friday and uh, we'll talk again next week.